Hey, let's go speculating. We'll talk with BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August the 11th and show number 30 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist, and Managing Director Ray Murphy will have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League Analyst is Harold Nichols, our American League Analyst, Columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about how to use the Mayberry Method as you go down the stretch. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Colorado outfield prospect David Dahl, and in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about looking at the top prospects from 2002 it's another big show thanks for joining us at baseball hq radio hey what do you say 15 teams within three games of a playoff spot we gotta talk some baseball And the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report. And our old friend, the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, it's Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start with a couple of starting pitchers that were covered by Stephen Nickrand in his most recent Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide column. He looked at pitchers who had uh, really terrific base performance values in the month of July. And let's start with a guy who recently got traded from Philadelphia to the Dodgers. Joe Blanton appears fairly high on the list. Yeah, and that trade is likely to make a real difference to Joe Blanton, I think. If you look at Joe Blanton's skills over the course of the year, they've really been very, very good. I mean, here's a guy with... uh, 7.8 7.8 dominance and an excellent control, only walking 1.4 batters per nine innings, 3.39 xERA, but his his real ERA is close to four and a half. So you you have to ask what's been going on, and part of the problem is that uh, Blanton tends to allow a lot of home runs, 1.5 home runs per nine, 16% home run per fly rate. A lot of that is just plain unlucky. But the move from Philadelphia to Los Angeles could make a real difference for Blanton. He's suddenly out of that ballpark where where home runs are, are really easy to come by and into a much more uh, a much better pitching venue. Uh, and I think uh, Joe Blanton is somebody who could really blossom now that he's in Los Angeles. 
Seems like he could. He's also a, a guy, you know what I like about him, and I don't know that it has any real big effect on how well he pitches, but he's very a very fast worker. Nick, I used to have him on one of my fantasy teams when he was in the American League with Oakland, and more than once he was involved in games that were under two hours, and I think that kind of helps. Yes, I think so. And you know, if you look at uh, if you look at the last the last month that Stephen Nick Rand did in terms of those skills, uh, his ERA in the last month is two point seven nine. Uh, been pitching very very well, but interestingly enough, the skills over the last month really just match the skills he's been having all season. Uh, it hasn't been anything spectacular in terms of skills over the past month. Just the results have been a little bit better. Although he does uh, show that command growth. Uh the strikeout-to-walk ratio has been improving steadily for the last few years, always a good sign. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also covered a starting pitcher in Washington, and of course your ears perk up and you say, got to be Steven Strasburg or Gio Gonzalez. But no, the uh, pitcher in question here is left-hander Ross Detweiler. Yeah, very definitely. You know, Ross Detweiler is, uh, Ross Detweiler is, a, is a guy who was picked seventh overall in the 2007 draft uh, and then hasn't really produced at the level at which we expect him to. Uh, but suddenly this year, I think we're finally seeing the, the emergence of Ross Detweiler as a starting pitcher. Um, if you look at what he's done, his, his, his command is excellent, good control, good command suddenly this year, uh, getting some results, 2.99 ERA. Uh, his XERA says that that's uh, there's some luck there, a 27% hit rate, uh, 3.93 expected earn run average. But uh, here's a guy who's been pitching very, very well over the last month, but also for the entire season. Uh, and so he, he may not be quite as good as his current uh, ERA suggests, but uh, uh, this guy is pitching very well and really has emerged as a starting pitcher. Uh, someone to certainly look at in uh, in uh, keeper leagues. Only 26 years old. It's uh, really starting to come into his own. Yeah, sometimes there's something to be said, Nick, for guys who were top prospects who kind of struggled their first few years in the league, and then all of a sudden when they start putting it together, you remember why they were so highly thought of in the first place. Yeah, very definitely. And as Stephen Nickram pointed out, here's a guy who's been improving this year and whose skills still have room for further growth. So I'm not sure we've seen Ross Detweiler top out yet. And you mentioned that there's a fairly large gulf between his uh, real ERA right around 3 and his expected ERA right around 4. So we would expect there's going to be some correction. We should point out that in the short run, anything can happen. And as the run gets shorter and shorter, the the, the range of possible outcomes gets bigger and bigger. So this is not a, a guarantee that Ross Detweiler is going to have a bunch of bad outcomes. In fact, you'd have to almost think the opposite was true. But something else to note about Ross Detweiler is his expected ERA is helped, uh, is higher because his strand rate is quite high at 77%. But on the other hand, a 53% ground ball rate and a very low 33% fly ball rate coupled with a low home run to fly ball rate means he's not giving up a lot of home runs less than one per nine innings, and that really helps your ERA because you, you allow base runners on, but they're not coming in three at a time. You're right. It surely does. And that ground ball rate is something to look at with that baller. I mean, if more than half the balls hit off of him are going on the ground, and that's a good thing in terms of outs. It is a good thing. He's a 66 base performance value overall. And one last fact about Ross Detweiler I'll mention. A few weeks ago, I did a research and analysis piece for BaseballHQ.com, and it was about the pitchers who get the most outs for their pitches. That is, they don't throw a lot of pitches in order to amass outs and, and innings pitched. Because I thought if we knew who those guys were, 
the chances are they're going to get deeper into games, which means the chances are they're going to pick up more wins because they're going to be around for more decisions. And at the very top of that list, the most efficient pitcher in the entire major leagues of baseball was Ross Detweiler of Washington. Uh, moving on to Milwaukee, we're going to talk about a closer. And how's this for an unlikely story? A guy named Jim Henderson, a career minor leaguer, all of a sudden picked up a couple of saves. And I guess the question is, is he the next John Axford? And also, I picked up a couple of saves, two, two saves, first two major league saves within 24 hours. I mean, uh, you know, here's a guy who struggled in the minor leagues for 10 years, suddenly has, has apparently broken out this year at AAA Nashville. Uh, 15 saves for Nashville, uh, excellent dom, good control, uh, suddenly in the major leagues. And if you look at what he's done in the major leagues, he's only pitched seven innings. But in those seven innings, 10 strikeouts, one walk, uh, one earned run, uh, pitching very, very well, very quickly. Uh, so, you know, the question is, is he the next John Axford? You've got to be real suspicious of a guy like this. I mean, the problem he's had in the minor leagues, Jim Henderson has always been a good strikeout guy. The problem he's had in the minor leagues is his control. Uh, he's always had trouble getting, uh, keeping guys off base via the base on balls. And so suddenly that's much, much better. It's gotten better this year at Nashville. And in the minor leagues so far, he's not walking anybody. So as long as he can keep guys off base, as long as he doesn't walk them, he has a chance of doing very, very well. But you have to, you have to think that given his history, there's going to be an implosion here coming very, very soon. Well, again, you, could, you can say that, Nick, but I wonder, given that there's very few opportunities left for him to implode, that uh, maybe this is a guy who's worth chasing. BaseballHQ.com projects he's going to get 40% of the saves uh, from now to the end of the season, splitting time more or less with Axford on, a, on an equal basis. Uh, the problem, I think, here is, Nick, he's not going to get a chance to explode more than once. If he goes out there and gives up four earned runs in a third of an inning and costs them a game, it's going to be all the excuse that the manager needs to say, career minor leaguer, he got lucky a couple of times, but I'm, I'm, I'm changing back to Axford. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, you're, you're right. There's a, short, there's a short time frame here. He's someone who may be very well worth picking up because he could rack up a few saves between now and the end of the season. But uh, I would guess you're right. There's only one implosion going to be allowed, and then he's, uh, then he's back further in the bullpen. And finally, at the risk of sounding like we're promoting my work at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, I had a column in my batting buyer's guide uh, earlier about volatility, and that is the, uh, we had a look at guys this year who have had big swings in their performance over the period of seven weeks, which is about what we have left. And uh, one of the guys who, who popped up on my screen for being a very reliable guy as far as batting average and home runs per week and so on, therefore a guy who seems like maybe a target you want to pick up if you're looking for something that's really going to help down the road is Alan Craig of St. Louis. Yeah, very definitely. Alan Craig is certainly having a breakout season. I mean, we, we knew going into the season based on what he did at the end of last year that Alan Craig had, had good possibilities, and he started the season uh, on the DL, uh, was out for a while, but since he's been been back in the lineup, here's a guy, 265 at-bats, 17 home runs, 59 RBIs, hitting 294, and his expected batting average is 307. So, uh, you know, here's someone to certainly look at, especially if you're in a keeper league. We projected uh, an upside of 320 home runs. He's going to reach that, and, and, and in less than a full season to play. And the added bonus, as you indicated, is lack of volatility. He's being very consistent, uh, and that certainly is good for your nerves and nothing else in terms of, of fantasy baseball.
And it's really important if you're if you're a team that's your first or second and you're trying to lock down your position and make sure you don't have any big slumps. It's the opposite case where if you're fifth or sixth and you're looking to catch lightning in a bottle, then really you want to target another kind of hitter, a guy who does have big swings because you're hoping to catch one of the big swings. And that would be a guy like, for instance, Mark Trumbo of the Angels. I know it's not the league we're talking about, but Mark Trumbo's a guy who has four home runs one week and then none for a week and then four the next week. And those kind of swings can be really helpful if you're trying to really make a move fast but if you're at the top of the league trying to hold your position then you need a guy like alan craig right very definitely i mean here's a guy who's very steady uh and, and you can really kind of count on the kind of production he's going to give you nice keeper guy too i think his his stats are all moving in the right direction from 2010 to through 2012 his ops has gone up steadily in in uh, the last two years i like alan craig for the short term and the long yeah, I do too. I mean, he's 28 years old. Here's a guy who's just coming into his, uh, his his peak years of performance, and so should be very good for the next couple of years at least. Bit of an injury risk, of course. He's had that issue in the past, but uh, I think you're right. We're going to see the, the best of Alan Craig might be yet to come. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Another exciting week, Patrick. Yeah, it is, and the deadline's behind us now. We're still maybe going to have some waivers action. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, one of the big stories of the week in the American League, Matt, a top prospect got called up, Manny Machado. He's an infielder in the Baltimore system. He's nominally a shortstop. Looks like he's going to play third base. Uh, yeah, this is one of the top prospects in the game, the kind of guys get all the, the prospect gurus drooling. Uh, but I really think it's going to be difficult, despite his first game success, for Machado to keep it up. And this guy's hitting 266 in double A this year. His plate patience isn't too bad. He's got a little bit of pop. This is the kind of guy, this is like a Hail Mary. If you need a shot to try to catch lightning in a bottle, and that's what the Orioles are doing here, seeing what happens. I think the Orioles really analyzed their organization and just said, hey, we're right on the cusp of the wild card here. We haven't been here in a while. Is there anybody in the organization that can help us right now? And Machado is that talented to be able to potentially help. He's good defensively, although he's mostly played shortstop. Only two balls or two games in the minors at third base, and they were about a month ago. So he hasn't played there recently. It's not like they were prepping him for this. They're just trying to catch lightning in a bottle here and hope that his first time through the league is going to look like uh, Bryce Harper's instead of look like Mike Trout's last year. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for a guy with this who has not proven his batting average yet to be a real big contributor here at the major league level at this age. Yeah, I agree with you. And then when you throw in the fact that he's going to have a defensive switch to pull off as well, in all likelihood they're going to leave J.J. Hardy at short and have Machado go over and take the place of Mark Reynolds or Wilson Bedemitt or a bunch of guys like that in Baltimore. Uh, could be a tall order for him. Uh, staying in Baltimore, Matt, we wanted to talk about quite a few guys today who either started slow and have got fast or vice versa. Matt Weeders had a great start this year for the Orioles, but he seems to have leveled off. What do you think is going on there, and what does the prognosis for the balance of the season? Well, it's going to be very difficult to predict the balance of the season. His contact rate has dropped to 76% in the second half. It had been on an upward trend throughout his entire career pretty much. He established a nice 81 to 83% level the last couple of years and is down to 76% in the second half. His fly ball rate has also fell to 30%, so his power next is only 52. 
Now, he really hasn't done much at all here in the second half. His struggles are especially isolated against right-handed pitchers, and of course, you know, two-thirds of the pitchers or so are righties. He's only batting 212 with a 367 slugging percentage when batting left-handed. So uh, really difficult to predict him to bounce back, other than the fact that he's 26 years old, he does have decent skills in the past, and we know that once a player owns a skill, once he displays it, he owns it, so he certainly could turn around at any time. But right now, statistically, there's no indication that uh, Weeders is going to turn on here for the last six or seven weeks of the season. And, of course, exactly the reverse happened for Albert Pujols. Got off to a famously terrible start, and of late, he's looked like the Albert Pujols of old. Do you like him as a momentum play? Yes, I do. I think we said back then that this is Albert Pujols, one of the most established high-end skill sets in the game, and there's no reason to panic over one month. If this would have happened in the middle of the season, nobody would even have noticed about it. He's hitting 335 since June 1st. Um, still makes great contact, although it's gone down a little bit to 87%. Uh, his expected batting average is 307, about 20 points higher than his current batting average. Uh, his powers return. He's had a lot of home runs this past week. He's on pace to possibly eclipse last year's 40, or excuse me, 37 home run pace to get up to the 40-42 level he posted in 2010. There's nothing not to like about Pujols' splits here. Uh, 45% fly ball rate in the second half. Um, got his plate patience back. He's still not to the elite level he was earlier, but he's starting to draw a few more walks. Uh, his power index is through the roof. His home run per fly ball has basically doubled from the first half. It will probably regress a little bit, but this is the Albert Pujols we have known for the last 10 years. So assuming that your league's trading deadline hasn't passed, if you're looking for somebody to shore up your roster, make a run, uh, maybe play up the slow start and the inconsistency if you can sell it as that and grab Albert Pujols. Uh, Brendan Bosch in Detroit has historically been a fast starter and a slow finisher, and this year he was a slow starter, and he seems to still be going slow. Is there any likelihood that he's going to pick up the pace? We can't see any in his performance statistic measures at all. His walk rate has been cut in half in 2012, only 4%. He was always about league average in patience, but this year uh, it's been horrible, and that's driven his I ratio down to 0.22. He has a low 28% hit rate, but uh, his power next is down to 91. Uh, we really don't see anything. His expected batting average is... 245 right at his existing batting average. So we don't see anything statistically that would point us to any other result than what we've seen so far from Brennan Bosch. Okay, so Brennan Bosch is a guy to give a pass to. In Toronto, Yunel Escobar has uh, not had the kind of year a lot of us were maybe thinking was in the cards for him this year. What, what's your uh, diagnosis here of Yunel Escobar of Toronto? Very similar to Bosch in that his walk rate has fallen dramatically from 11% in 2011, which is a career high, down to 6% this year. And when a guy's pressing at the plate and not being patient, you're going to see other things fall as well. Uh, his ground ball rate is 59%, again, a career high. Only 21% of balls in the air, so it's going to be hard to keep that home run. Uh, he has always displayed a little bit of power. But uh, with that, only 21% of balls going in the air, very difficult to hit home runs. He has a low hit rate, so his batting average may have some upside, but uh, that low walk rate uh, really is, is difficult to overcome, especially when the balls you do hit because you're not being patient go on the ground. That's going to limit your opportunities to get on base, limit your opportunities to score runs and produce RBIs. 
I was going to say that a lot of people look at a fairly high ground ball rate, low fly ball rate, and say, well, that really restricts a, a batter's ability to uh, to get home runs. But in a lot of instances, it's also a drag on batting average because you're just making a lot of outs, and it's also a drag on RBIs. Yeah, you're going to a lot of double plays, keeping your team from scoring, for one thing. Um, and also, with a high fly ball rate or high ground ball rate, unless you're fast, that could be a positive thing. But Escobar's never been that particularly... Uh, agile on the base paths, so it's not like he's keeping the ball on the ground because he has no power and therefore utilizing excellent speed to get on base and put the pressure on the defense. Also, Matt, let's look at a couple of pitchers. Matt Harrison's having a really terrific year in Texas. He is. We're a little suspect of it. His skills are only mediocre. His actual ERA is about 317. His expected ERA 407. A very high strand rate, 77%. Now, Harrison's had high strand rates the previous two seasons as well, although not this high. And has increased his ground ball rate, which is a good thing for a pitcher as opposed to a hitter, to 51%. We like that. He has a 2.2 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. But his strikeout rate is only 5.3 batters per nine innings. So even though he's improving his control, he doesn't have a lot of room for error. His home run per fly ball rate is very low at 8% when historically it's been in double digits, especially pitching in the ballpark at Arlington, which is a known hitter's park. So I would be very wary of Matt Harrison. Uh, he's an okay pitcher. His expected array of 407 is not too bad for Texas, but if you think he's going to lead your team to the ERA title from what he's done so far, I certainly wouldn't be banking on it in the second half. And especially with the hot weather coming in Texas, uh, it's already here, and boy, that really wears out a guy. And finally, Clay Buchholz in Boston, another guy that some people were cautiously optimistic about going into the year. Well, it's a tale of two seasons here. April to May, his ERA was 7.19. His strikeout-to-walk ratio was 1.2. He was also helped by a low 63% strand rate. Or should be hurt by a low 63% strand rate and a high 34% hit rate. Since June 1st, though, 2.17 ERA, 3.4 to 1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. He's been aided by a low 24% hit rate and a high 81% strand rate. As this is Jekyll and Hyde here. If we knew which pitcher we were going to get, we could make that call. But here's a guy who always has a high quality start ratio and a high disaster ratio. His dominance disaster split 47%, 26% over his career. So this is sort of an all-or-nothing guy, a high-risk guy for a sinker ball pitcher. So, if you, again, if you're behind and you want to ride this hot streak, I'm all for it. But be careful because uh, we know it can turn around in a heartbeat. Right now, he seems to have worked it out. He's got a great strikeout-to-walk ratio, 50% ground ball rate, which is very typical for his career. He's doing all the right things. So if, if you had to push me, I'd say hang on and ride it out. But just beware to pull the plug if you start seeing a couple uh, clunkers out there by Clay Buckles. And you've talked about this in the past before, Matt, both when you in these conversations, as well as in your Market Pulse commentaries, and that is as the season grinds on and you have fewer and fewer starts, you have to be willing to accept the possibility that a pitcher might be volatile, and I talked about that earlier with Ray Murphy and with Harold Nichols, and depending on your position in the standings, you might welcome that volatility or you might not. Yeah, it depends on what you need. Again, if you're at the top of the standings, you want reliability. If you're at the bottom, you've got to take those chances. As a guy who sat Ubaldo Jimenez as he pitched his best game of the year against the Red Sox after posting an ERA of uh, eight-something over his past five starts, I just missed out in my points leagues on about 25 solid points because I didn't stick with the guy I've been riding all year and finally got tired of him having horrible starts. Um, so that's the risk you take in your leagues is you got to make sure that 
is this volatility something I want? If I'm at the top of the standings and it's a close ERA race, I got to be real careful who I start Buckholz again. If I'm in fourth place trying to come back, I got to just bet that he's going to keep up these skills and ride it in the second half because it's the only chance I have to win. And as you point out, the impact on those ratios aren't really that significant at this point of the year as they would be in April or May. And, of course, if you're playing in head-to-head formats, that dominance disaster score is something else to take a look at because, really, in, in head-to-head, you want a guy who's going to be there every week for you. Exactly, and you got to make sure that could win or lose several categories for you. And that's sort of bring out my market pulse this week uh, is that we're going to look at the Mayberry method is more important right now than your ratios because sometimes you can make a bigger impact in your categories and playing time is so important because playing time is going to change across most rosters here in the next three or four weeks. That's your Market Pulse commentary a little later in the show. Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with BaseballHQ.com managing director and speculator columnist Ray Murphy comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined? He's going out to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want showtime. Who should get fined? Why don't umpires get fined? I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by Ray Murphy, the managing director at BaseballHQ.com and our speculator columnist. Ray, it's good to have you back on the show. Thank you for the invite as always, Patrick. And I have to ask if you're watching the Olympic Games with no baseball. been splitting my time between the Olympics and baseball. Last night uh, with all, so many day games and uh, baseball on Thursday, on Thursday, I was able to... Uh, Taking some of the Olympics last night, I saw the uh, 200 meter and the uh, end of the decathlon and a bunch of good stuff like that. I'm watching the Olympic Games and they turn to an event. I'm not making this up. It's a bunch of guys riding those little tiny bikes like clowns ride. No way. Yeah, BMX <laughs> racing is now an official Olympic sport, and these guys, honest to goodness, they look like you know when Fred Flintstone was riding a bicycle, his feet would be flying around at 10 million RPMs and the thing would be barely moving. That's basically what these guys are doing. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. We have clown bicycle racing, but not baseball. <laughs> well, there was there was some baseball content the uh, the other night. They were making a big uh, deal of uh, Frank Viola's daughter on the uh, Olympic diving team. So that was as close oh, as we right, got to yeah. actual baseball. How how did she do? Do you know? Uh, she did not make the final round for the medals. They, she got eliminated in the uh, the semifinals, I think, in the platform diving. Okay, I may be out on a limb on this, but. I'm of the opinion that all those events that require judges to decide who wins, they're not sports. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. Ray, let's start with your most recent speculator column when you were looking at the potential fallout from all of the deadline deals, and it was a busy deadline trading season this year. And I'd like to start with your most provocative speculation, that teams are actually starting to figure out what a lot of us fantasy owners have been thinking for quite a while. The closer myth is just that, and it doesn't help you win. Yeah, I was kind of, you know, taking a longer term view of what we've seen in the, with closers this year. Obviously, there was so much angst and hand wringing about closer roles back in April and May when seemingly every closer was on the rocks or getting demoted or in danger of getting demoted. And yet for all of that churn, come the deadline, no contender really said, we need a new closer to get us over the top and went out and paid for one in the trade market. You know, we saw Brett Myers and Broxton get dealt from their 
you know, re- they're rebuilding teams into setup roles on contenders. But those were, you know, fairly minor acquisitions in terms of prospect costs. Nobody went out and said, I need to go and, you know, acquire a top-notch closer, and nobody was willing to do that. So if you take that data point and sew it into some things we saw last winter where obviously the big Heath Bell contract for Miami is not working out well, and while Jonathan Papelbon hasn't been bad, that might not be the best allocation of dollars in Philadelphia. And you start to wonder maybe, you know, the – GMs around baseball are getting a little wise to what, like, as what you say, that fantasy owners have been wise for a while, that you don't want to pay top dollar or pay expensive prospects to acquire saves. And it's okay to go out and, if you're the Angels, go out and get an Ernesto Frieri, or if you're the Padres, just keep growing closers and waiting seemingly on trees. But teams are doing sort of what fantasy owners do when they stockpile potential save sources at the draft table. They throw four or five darts at the wall and figure that over the course of the season, a couple of them will stick long enough to stabilize the position. And I, I think Oakland figured this out quite a while ago. I can remember it seemed like every year Billy Bean would have some guy who came out of left field, metaphorically speaking, and maybe even literally, and would come in and get a whole bunch of saves because save is a dumb statistic and Billy Bean seems to have realized it, and then deal the guy off to get something really useful and worthwhile and then and then groom the next guy by finding a guy who throws a fair number of strikes, gets some decent ground ball figures, and throw the, throw him in there in the ninth inning with three run leads, and he runs up his saves total, and out he goes for some more useful pieces. Yeah, it was, uh, was Billy Koch did that with, wasn't it? And he traded him or... Jason Isringhausen and made Isringhausen his closer, or maybe it was vice versa. But yeah, he was running that you know uh, carousel right in and out of his bullpen for uh, several years in a row there. And you know, it might be the only thing stopping him from doing it now might be that uh, you know there aren't as many buyers as there were. Were you surprised at all by the Broxton trade? Not from the point of view of Kansas City getting rid of him because that was obviously a great move for them. But the Cincinnati Reds had a terrific bullpen anyway, and then they add a guy who really is not as good as most of what they already had. And uh, and I wonder, does that mean we should sound a cautionary note to fantasy owners who might be looking at Broxton, especially in NL-only leagues, as some kind of guy that's really worth a significant investment, given he's not that good? Yeah, he's certainly not that good, and we should be sounding that alarm on a skills reason. In terms of what Cincinnati saw there... You know, for everything I just said about, <coughs> excuse me, the closer myth maybe uh, getting busted around baseball, in Walt Jockety and Dusty Baker, you have a couple of old school guys there, and it might be that, uh, you know, maybe Jockety is doing things the way he's always done them, or maybe, uh, you know, Dusty Baker is just more comfortable with, you know, somebody who has the quote-unquote proven closer label, and Jockety's catering to that, but... My, uh, the point I forgot to make when I was talking about Broxton and Brett Myers earlier is you got to look at the teams that acquired them. And, you know, you had the Jockley Baker combination acquire Broxton. And then you have, uh, you know, Kenny Williams went out and got Brett Myers. And Kenny Williams is, uh, you know, he's made a lot of good moves and a lot of bad moves all over his career, but he's pretty unpredictable and all over the map and marches to the beat of his, of a different drummer sometimes. So, uh, you know, they may be the two exceptions that prove the rule. And, Ray, uh, Broxton's name came up in a BaseballHQ.com subscriber forum thread. Subscriber forums are just, to me, they're one of the greatest things about BaseballHQ.com because of the conversations that really get you thinking out there. And a subscriber was asking about the value of various relief pitchers that he, that he was looking at for the stretch, uh, seven or eight weeks, and Broxton's name came up 
in the course of people discussing that. And then you chimed in and you said, look, we're talking about, and, and I'm quoting here, maybe 12 to 15 innings for any relief period. I'm sorry. We're talking about maybe 12 to 15 innings for any relief pitcher over the balance of the season. And one bad night in the next 50 days or so could trash anybody's ERA or whip over the time period. This truly is a crapshoot. Can you expand on that? I think it's a real interesting point. Yeah, um, you know, what I was saying there basically was, you know, they were trying to determine, you know, the best relief pitcher to pick up over 12 to 15 innings. And the comment actually got some negative feedback from a couple of people because it was being interpreted as saying it doesn't matter who you pick or you can just pick anybody. Um, I certainly advocate that even for these small sample size decisions that you have over the last, you know, six or eight weeks of the season, you know, you should be focusing on the best skill sets and strikeout rates, all the things you would do if you were making the same decision in April. But it's really just an expectation setting about what you're going to get from that guy. And, you know, Broxton may have a BPV of 50, and uh, Vinny Pistano may have a, video, a BPV over 100, and, you know, all the evidence may say that Pistano is the better skilled pitcher and the guy you want to pick up in a situation like that. But while in April there are no guarantees that the guy with the better BPV is going to do better. There are even fewer guarantees now over such a small sample size, and Bruxton could go out and th- string together eight or nine scoreless appearances just because the laws of variance allow him to do that, and Pistano could go out and give up five earned runs tomorrow night, and then even if he went scoreless the rest of the season, his ERA is going to look worse than Broxton for the six-week period. So, you know, I'm not advocating departing from the process to make those decisions. I'm just trying to reset expectations about the outcomes you're likely to see, because the outcomes really start spraying all over the board at this time of year. And do you think the same is true about hitters? Uh, Evan Longoria is back. A lot of people looking at him as a guy who's really going to tear it up down the stretch. But that, that same idea of volatility and expectations surely has to apply here as well. It does. I think there's probably a hierarchy of it. I think it starts with relievers because, like I said, you're talking about 12 or 15 one-inning appearances from now until the end of the season. I think it goes to starting pitchers next because you're looking at you know, more innings, but fewer individual outings. You might see a starter get six, seven, maybe eight more starts the rest of the year. Um, and, you know, again, one bad outing or one day in Wrigley Field where the wind's blowing out could trash the overall results for the rest of the season. It definitely applies to hitters. Um, I think that more gets to be an issue, you know, another week or two or three from now. You're still at the point where, you know, a everyday hitter will get, you know, 80, 90 at-bats a month. So you've got 150 at-bats left, which if you put that in terms of how we start evaluating hitters in April at the beginning of the season, we look for 100, 150 at-bats before we can draw any conclusions about what they're doing. So the sample size is quickly shrinking for hitters. I'm not totally ready to call them a crapshoot yet, but we'll be there soon enough. I'll tell you what, I'll call it a crapshoot now, uh, and the reason is, you'll remember at BaseballHQ.com, I did a research and analysis piece a number of months ago now, I think, and I looked at Derek Jeter's career, and uh, he's a 316 career hitter, and if you look at him over very long periods, seasons or seasons plus, his batting average has always been around 310, 315, somewhere in there. But when you narrow the scope of how long of a period you're looking at, to 150 at-bats or, or 60 games or whatever, all of a sudden you see him sometimes in that stretch he'll hit 100. Sometimes he'll hit 450. And I think that, uh, again, we, uh, we might be sort of guilty of being the victims of our own success because we do look at these skills metrics and we say with some confidence – 
your chances of doing well in batting average with Derek Jeter are probably better than they are with Adam Dunn, just based on history and based on skills and so on. But as that as the scope narrows, the range of volatility grows, and I think when we get down to 150 at-bats that are left or 160 at-bats that are left, I think we're really looking at some very potentially volatile performances. Yeah, you know, you're right. I have no com- comeback for that. You've convinced me. <laughs> well, that was that was way easier than I thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're supposed to you're supposed to call me names or something. But, uh, <laughs> no, I like it too much for that, Patrick. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's it's a it's just a point that everybody should remember that at this stage of the year there is going to be volatility in all performances. And when we say it's too small a sample, we're us- and often we're saying that about twenty at bats. It really is true of larger numbers of at bats. And when you want to really narrow it, nail it down, I should say. Uh, you're talking about two or three seasons to establish whether a guy has certain skills and certain performance levels. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the managing director and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, in your last speculator column, you also talked about stars and scrubs in Philly. And I'm wondering, do you really think Ruben Amaro is adopting a rotisserie fantasy approach? You know, I'm not so sure it's a conscious long-term strategy because... Well, that would imply that Ruben Amaro has a conscious long-term strategy, and I'm not sure he does. But he's kind of painted himself into the corner where whether or not he actually calls it that, that's what he's doing. I added up the numbers, and if you look at uh, the top three Philly starters, you know, Lee, Holiday, and Hamels, now that he's been extended, and you look at Howard, Utley, Rollins, and throw Papelbon in there just because he's also making double-digit millions a year. Um, sure. Those guys are under contract next year for something on the order of $125 million, just for seven spots on your 25-man roster. Now, their payroll this year is getting up near the luxury tax threshold of like $175, $180 million, and they'll probably be in the same neighborhood next year. That, that luxury tax serves as a de facto cap for most teams. So, you know, that's left with... $50 million, $45 million to lay out over, you know, 18 roster spots. That's, uh, you know, that's the kind of, sure, it's your bench and it's your bullpen, and a lot of those guys are cheaper anyway, but that's a fairly stratified roster he's going to break camp with, with next year. And, you know, he may not call it stars and scrubs, but, you know, anybody who's played rotisserie and tried that strategy knows it when they see it, and that's what this is. And it can be successful. We have to we have to acknowledge that sometimes stars and scrubs works, especially in a mixed league where you have a lot of of choices to make. I think maybe the problem here is when you do stars and scrubs, you really have to make sure your stars are going to get the job done as stars. And I think that's where, if that's what Philadelphia is doing or can be said to be doing, runs into trouble because uh, Howard's definitely a question mark. Utley's had big injury problems, and uh, Papelbon, he's a closer. It's not that much use as we talked about earlier yeah that's exactly right there are two components to it you have to nail those picks for your stars which as you said due to age and durability issues is somewhat dubious for this crop that philadelphia has and the other side of it is your scrubs you got to hit a couple of you know one and two dollar guys who you know break out beyond expectations and that was kind of the point i was making in the column is just because of you know especially offensively because of the opportunities that are going to be available at you know five or six lineup positions next year and the fact that that's a pretty friendly ballpark for scoring and that if those core guys are healthy they're going to you know 
be the core of a pretty productive offense. You really want to pay attention to whether it's Nate Shearholz who sticks around and is the left fielder next year, or whether Dom Brown finally starts delivering on his promise, or whoever the third baseman is next year, whether it's Wigginton again or Polanco or somebody else who they bring in on a uh, on a short term deal. Those guys, you know, who will be the scrubs and the stars and scrubs part of the Philly lineup, you know have a chance to be pretty productive. We don't necessarily know who they are yet, but that's you know sort of a generic roster position I'm pretty interested in checking out over the offseason. Yeah, and again, it's the same thing when you're doing stars and scrubs as a strategy in a fantasy draft. The that Exactly what you said, the two sides are you've got to make sure your stars perform like stars, and then you've got to get either lucky or prescient about picking up the right guys to be your scrubs and uh, it's it's going to be an interesting thing to watch in philadelphia and i wonder if it's successful at all whether other teams will start following that and i i I always think about what the lakers are doing they have a salary cap situation they just acquired another big player and they seem to think that with a core of you know highly paid guys you can fill in around the edges and it's an interesting proposition yeah it really is you know one of the things that a rotisserie manager would do would be you know, you take your scrubs, and if the guys you took your shots at in March aren't performing early in April, you know, you get rid of those guys pretty quickly and just try different scrubs and turn around until you find a couple of guys who are reasonably productive. And I don't know that it's that easy for a major league team to churn through, you know, five third basemen in five weeks until they find one they like. But, uh, you know, that puts more pressure on them, as you say, to either get lucky with their first choices or be incredibly prescient and find that quadruple-A guy who's never gotten a shot who really, really deserves one and can step up and you know provide even league average production because that's really all they're looking for from those spots. Yeah, and the uh, advantage that the fantasy owner has is usually in a 15-team mix, it's a relatively shallow format. Every major league team is playing in the deepest possible format because it's 100% penetration, and you can't just throw Nate Shearholtz back into the free agent pool and go in there and grab, uh, you know, um, um, Rajai Davis from Toronto as a fill-in because Toronto's probably going to want to hang on to Rajai Davis in the in the real world. So it's a it is a different kind of of concept that they're approaching. I noticed Ray, you also su- suspect that the Dodgers' new owners could be players in the waivers market this year and the future free agent market. It looks like they've got the it, it really does, and you know some of that may be an initial spending spree that's building goodwill in the community. Although I think they have plenty of goodwill already, just because they are not named McCourt. But um, they've right. you know they're throwing around some money there already. They've you know taken on the Henry Ramirez contract. They extended Andre Ethier's contract. The thing that really caught my eye was that they were the ones who put the uh, reportedly put the waiver claim in on Cliff Lee, who is owed something like you know a minimum of like eighty seven and a half million dollars over the next three or four years. That's a significant nut to take on, and if they're willing to do that, if they were willing to, you know, when they claimed him on waivers, Philly had every right to just say, sure, take them. We don't even want anything in return. The contract's yours. And if they were willing to take the risk to put the claim in, knowing that they could get saddled with that kind of money, that just tells you how much money they think they have to spend in the next few years. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, what outlets they turn to spend it on. And, you know, certainly there's a competition thing going on in Southern California there where, you know, while the McCourts have been running the Dodgers into the ground, you know, the good things have been happening down in Anaheim. They brought in Pujols. Mike Trout has broken out, et cetera. And, you know, competing for the hearts, minds, and dollars of Southern California baseball fans, uh, the Dodgers appear to be, uh, you know, ready to open the wallets and fight fire with fire with the Angels. So, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of money flowing out there from all the evidence we've seen so far. Probably be better to ask Jock Thompson out in Los Angeles about this, but is 
Are the Dodgers and the Angels really competing for fans? They're, it's geographically relatively far apart. I know probably as a television market there might be some competition there, but aren't Dodgers fans Dodgers fans and Angels fans Angels fans and never the twain shall meet? And are they just competing for the undecideds? There, that's probably true, and we probably should ask Jock about that. You, know, you have a couple of points of evidence on it. You know, the Angels, you know, how, I'm unsure how successful they've been, but even going back to the the name change to call themselves the LA Angels of Anaheim, you know, they're trying to penetrate the LA market. And then over the past couple of years, I think the you know the level of discontent and the level of disgust with the McCords probably you know drove that to be a somewhat successful process to some degree. So you know the Dodgers may simply be trying to you know in political terms shore up their own base here, and maybe you know I, I think they have enough natural foothold in LA that you know as the, as ownership's credibility comes back, you know owner. Any inroads the Angels made in L.A. proper can probably be walked back pretty easily. But the Dodgers, uh, you know, the financial commitments they look like they're willing to make are certainly going to uh, help that process along. Yeah, at least maybe bring back some people who might have strayed from the fold a little bit. And uh, it sure would be interesting to see Kershaw and Lee at the head of a rotation for any team. That's a mighty powerful one-two punch. Yeah, it is. And, you know, another thing about that is, you know, that you start making uh, your rotation awfully left-handed too, and those guys are, uh, you know, contrast in styles. You know, where Kershaw still has the occasional, you know, bat of control issues and can blow you away at a hundred, whereas, uh, you know, Lee. I mean, he sure throws plenty hard, but he's more of a, you know, pinpoint command kind of guy. You know, that's a, you know, that's a pretty interesting combo to potentially put together. And you know, one of the things I was saying in the column is just because this waiver claim didn't work out and the uh, Phillies pulled back Lee and no trade was made doesn't mean that you know that can't evolve somewhere down the road you know for all the conversation we just had about the Philly rotate the Philly expenses you know they could you know get things back in balance out of starts and scrubs a little bit more by unloading one of those contracts and Lee is probably the most marketable of them that's not saying much because they're all kind of albatrosses but you know come trade deadline next year or something like that it may not be totally unrealistic to see philadelphia looking to and having more interest in getting rid of lee and if the dodgers are still sitting around with a lot of blank checks then they might be a buyer you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with ray murphy managing director of baseballhq.com and our speculator columnist and ray in that same column you said you think the rockies and the brewers look like they they think they can bounce back fairly quickly from off years yeah this is based more on you know things they didn't do with the trade deadline, or in Milwaukee's case, things they did. You know, everybody knew they had to move Zach Greinke, but I was interested in what they got for him because in Juan Segura, they got a player who's major league ready. They've already called him up to the majors, and he feels a really pressing need on that team. They've had a revolving door of bad shortstops for quite a few years now. And sure, Greinke blows a huge hole in that rotation, but... You know, they still have Gallardo, and as bad, as injured as Sean Markham has been, the injury might let him get re-signed by the Brewers for a reasonable amount of money for a smaller market club this year. And they're quietly putting together, you know, some decent back end of the rotation options with Marco Estrada and Michael Fears and those kind of guys. And it, it might be that, you know, they are actually in a reasonable position if Gallardo's capable of being the head of that rotation and they can backfill it and that team could still score some runs and if Segura stabilizes the infield defensively especially you know maybe there is a quicker bounce that can happen in Milwaukee there uh Colorado you know I sort of saw the same thing going on when they didn't trade Betancourt and they didn't trade Belisle and they didn't 
relieve themselves of any of that outfield logjam they have now that Colvin and and uh, Fowler have broken out a little bit with Kadire and Cargo. They were kind of acting like they don't think they're that far away. And sure, to some degree, their terrible season has been a product of Troy Tulowitzki being off and then hurt. And, you know, their pitching rotation has been a disaster for reasons of poor performance. As much as injury, they thought they were getting back. Jorge De La Rosa and, you know, Nicasio has been hurt and, you know, on and on and on. You know, they have, you know, an interesting collection of young power arms that just haven't delivered anything yet. Um, so it does seem like the mindset there is similar to Milwaukee where they think they can come back quickly next year. I'm less optimistic about their chances. It just seems like the pitching staff needs the rotation at least needs so much help in this gimmick business about the four man rotation. We've talked about that on the show before and you know, while there might be some merit to it, you know, there's still a personnel problem there where no matter what you're asking the pitchers to do and how many of the the starters you're using for how many pitches they have to perform and the guys they have aren't really performing. Um, they might be, you know, if they're going to use a four man rotation, they might still be four starters away from being contenders basically. Yeah. I talked about the Colorado Rockies rotation plan with Jeff Erickson a few weeks ago on the show. Uh, Jeff from rotowire.com of course, and also from Sirius XM. And he said, you know, we aren't going to be able to tell whether this worked because they the pitchers aren't the right pitchers for the plan. They're just not good enough. And I wondered if maybe at the time when the Rockies were looking at it, they thought it was easier to find eight 65-pitch guys than, than four or five 120-pitch guys. And even at 75, 80 pitches per outing, these guys just aren't good enough. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But the, you're also quite right on the back end, the back end is that one of the strengths of the Rockies is that, you know, having kept Belial and Betancourt around, they are pretty well stocked in the bullpen. You know, Belial and Betancourt are quite good, and Rex Brothers has been coming on the last couple of months, and Matt Reynolds is pretty good, and they've even stumbled into something with Adam Adovino over the last month or two. You know, it they may be quite right in that, you know, finding eight 65 inning pitchers isn't that hard and they can make that a strength of the team, but you still just can't ignore the four, the other four guys who have to, you know, eat the first four or five innings of every game. And, you know, they, you know, the plan may be right, but I think Jeff is quite right that those just aren't the right pitchers for it. It would be interesting if somebody could find those guys, you know, guys that are really good starting pitchers who hit the wall at two and a half times through the lineup and are otherwise really good. And, and like I said, I don't think these are those guys. But if they could find them, it would be interesting. It would also be interesting from the point of view of of uh, fantasy roster planning because all of a sudden now you're not looking so much at those four guys who might not get through the five innings, but the next guys after them. So if it's always uh, Jeff Francis starts and, and, and Longman X follows, you might think to yourself, Longman X isn't that bad. I, I, I don't like Jeff Francis for obvious reasons because he's not going to get enough five-inning outings. But the guy who follows him stands to vulture a whole pile of wins if he's Yeah, injured. and you know, this is completely off the, uh, off the radar, and this actually ended up on the cutting room floor of this column. But I was actually wondering if there's not something along the lines of what you were just talking about going on in Toronto, where I was pretty intrigued by their acquisition of J.A. Happ at the deadline, and they threw him in the rotation, in, in the bullpen when he got to Toronto, even though he'd been starting in Houston. And given the health concerns they've had with, you know, their, you know, power arms in that rotation, you know, your Brandon Moros and, you know, that sort of thing. I was wondering if they're not 
trying to accumulate assets to do something similar to what the Rockies are doing next year and targeting guys for that. Because if you were targeting guys for that, Hap is exactly the kind of guy I would look for. He's got great stuff, and he shows up in Stephen Nickerand's um, starting pitcher's buyer's guide column every time he talks about velocity because he throws so hard, and he's actually been gaining velocity this year. But he's a little guy who has absolutely no durability. And if you were, you know, Alex Anthopoulos is awfully creative up there, and it, it just struck me that, they might have something like this cooking for 2013. We'll have to see what happens in the offseason. It's definitely something to watch because I, I would like to have the second guys behind a lot of these guys in Toronto, in Colorado, and I think it could really resurrect the careers of an awful lot of guys who are, um, as I said, they, they pitch well through those first two, maybe three times through the order, but then they get nailed, and instead of being 3.5 ERA guys, they're 4.9 ERA guys because they're just getting killed at that stage. And it's a mindset of the team maybe to not replace them earlier or to go into it with the full intention of replacing them, regardless of how well they're doing based on a pitch count. I think it's really interesting. Uh, going back to what you were talking about with the Brewers, do you think that maybe – Teams are going to, like the Brewers, especially small revenue teams or lower revenue teams, are looking at this new playoff format and thinking, all I have to do is win around 88, 89 games, and I can do that without a Zach Greinke, but I can't do it without a shortstop. And they're planning, they're playing not to win the division, but to sneak into the playoffs and then have three good starters, as we all know, is all you really need to get you through. Yeah, not only that, but, you know, if you have the core lineup, I think what you're saying is exactly right. But in addition, if you have the core lineup and you're scoring runs and you're short of those three starters, you can go out and get one at the trade deadline. You know, you went out and got, you know, you went out and traded Greinke this year. You know, if things go well and you're back in the position next July where you're a starting pitcher away, go out and get, you know, whoever next summer's Granky is and, you know, pay the prospect or two and, you know, buy the guy who will start either the one game playoff or, you know, game two in the divisional series round. You know, it's probably a better allocation of resources to do it that way than to invest in the guy in January and hope you got the right guy and, you know, have to pay him for the full season. If you're a mid market team, you know, you can, you know, budget yourself so you have room to take on the payroll of, of, a top starting pitcher who's being dumped by a non-contender and get, you know, next year's Ryan Dempster or something like that at the end of July and only owe him for one third of the season, but still have him for October when you really need him. Yeah, that's a great point. And it may be that a lot of people criticize the playoff format because it introduces such a big element of luck, which works against the established teams, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the big money teams, But really, it could be said that maybe it works in the favor of the lesser teams because if you can get into that wild card game, all you have to do is win once with your best pitcher on the mound, maybe against theirs. But it becomes a very uh, more of a coin flip issue than trying to win the division. And then once you're into the playoffs proper, then all bets are off because now you can go in there and you don't need a full rotation. You don't. All you need is a good team with three good starters. Yeah, that's the other thing about it being a one game playoff. If you're in say, 85 or 86 win team and you get matched up against a team that's, you know, fairly clearly, clearly better than you because some years you'll have the first wild card being 95 games and the second one being 85 wins, then, you know, the, the principle of, you know, probabilities and all of that say that from the underdog's perspective, you're better off having a shorter series. So you're better off in a one-game playoff. You have a better chance of beating a better team in a one-game playoff than you do in a best two out of three or three out of five or four out of seven. So if right. you're a team that has an 85-win ceiling and you're looking at your chances of making a playoff run, you're actually happy that this is a one-game playoff to kick off the wild card. 
It's why we see more uh, successful teams, I think, in the NFL making it through than we ever do in Major League Baseball when, with the series difference, as you said. Uh, Ray, before we let you go, I'm going to ask you to go out on a speculative limb uh, pretty much all season at Baseball HQ Radio. I've been asking our guests to talk about their picks to click the rest of the way and, uh, and their picks to avoid for the rest of the way, and I know it's all very volatile at this point, as we talked about, but um, who's a National League hitter you would, you would like to add to your roster? I'll go with Todd Frazier. I think he did a pretty good job when Votto was out, and I got a feeling he's going to start taking third base at, bat, at bats from Roland. And, you know, full-time playing time over the last several weeks seemed to agree with him, and I think he can finish strong. On the American League side, who's a hitter you like? Uh, David Murphy in Texas uh, just got named a, quote, starter, even though he's perpetually the fourth outfielder on that team. And, you know, it, August is a pretty good time to be hitting in Texas, and the guy's going to get a lot of at-bats in a powerful lineup. Yeah, and he's a good hitter, too. Uh, National League pitcher you like? I'm a believer that Jeremy Affelt is on the verge of taking over as the closer in San Francisco. He may not be claimed everywhere yet, and uh, I'd jump on him quickly. How about an American League pitcher you'd like to add to your roster? Um, Carlos Villanueva. He's another one of those guys, you know, in that short uh, starter role that we were talking about. You know, they took him out of the bullpen and put him in the rotation, and you know, he's been pretty good starting for, you know, four, five, six weeks now, and uh, – he may break down, but for as long as he's starting and healthy, I'm enjoying what he's doing. Carlos Villanueva, Toronto Blue Jays, of course, and uh, he could be one of those guys, like you say, next year where they, if they go to a, some kind of uh, amended rotation pattern, as you suggested. How about a National League hitter you don't like the rest of the way? Uh, David Wright. Numbers are very good, but you know, they're being propped up by the fact that he was unbelievable in April and May, and he's been pretty pedestrian since. On the American League side, a hitter? Uh, I don't have one of those. Go on. Jose Bautista might be done this year. If Toronto falls out, they may not even play him. If he does come back, uh, that wrist injury is starting to look very problematic. Might be a good get for a keeper league team, especially if you can get him at a decent price. But for this year, if you're thinking of catching lightning in a bottle, uh, Jose Bautista might not be the name you want to be looking at. Uh, how about a National League pitcher to avoid? Gio Gonzalez taking out a little bit of water lately. Uh, he's propped up by one or two good outings against bad teams. He mowed down the Astros uh, this week, but, uh, you know, Better offenses have been having their way with him a little bit lately. Gio Gonzalez, I should mention, when I did a study of uh, of pitchers whose efficiency ratings are uh, are high and low, I was talking about this earlier with uh, Harold Nichols in our National League report. Uh, at the top of the table was Ross Detweiler getting the most outs with the fewest pitches, and way down near the bottom was Gio Gonzalez. So there's that as well, high pitch counts practically every time he goes out. Yeah, those start to take a toll at this time of year. They certainly do. How about an American League pitcher to avoid, Ray? Uh, you Darvish, uh, he pitched, I saw him in Boston earlier this week and the Red Sox knocked him around pretty good. And if you think about all the reasons we were a little bit short, slow to buy in on him back in the preseason, we were talking about, you know, the workload and going every fifth day and the Texas heat and all of that. This is exactly the time of year when we would think all of that stuff would start to hit the fans. So, uh, shine away from you Darvish down the stretch. And, Ray, before I let you go, we talked last time you were on about your NFBC team. You were in the top ten at the time. How are you doing now? Uh, still treading water in that neighborhood. I think we were 15th this morning. Uh, we got as high as, like, 6th in, right around the All-Star break. Uh, you know, we then had a bad week or two and plummeted down into the 20s. But we've clawed back up to 15th. We're still leading the league and, uh, you know, hoping to make a run in the top ten down the stretcher. So if you win your your 15-team league, is that is that a paying thing? Yes, winning the league pays, and then I think the uh, the top 10 overall spots out of the 420 have additional payouts. So we're just outside that uh, additional tier now and hoping to creep in there. 
I'm betting that the uh, the amounts that you have to improve in any particular category are pretty small, so a good week here or there, you could still make a big run. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, Ray, thanks very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. Ray Murphy is the managing director of BaseballHQ.com and the speculator columnist at the site. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league telling me where we are in the standings. He can call me a horse manager. I'll buy that. But I don't need to be reminded that this club is the standing. By somebody that can't do their job, that never has been able to do their job. Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this crap. That was a classic the last two games, I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when they don't attack me personally, again, I don't give a s***. Because I got more time than all those s*** out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the fucking wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, those other guys out there, Brent Lager Perpetio, would be in the minor league. Maybe. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Matt Beagle is on deck with the Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com Minor League expert Rob Gordon telling us about Colorado outfielder David Dahl. The Colorado Rockies have to be thrilled with the quick start of their first-round draft pick, David Dahl. Dahl was the 10th overall pick in the 2012 draft out of high school in Alabama. The left-handed Dahl is a potential five-tool center fielder. He runs well, has a plus throwing arm, and projects to hit for both average and power. Some scouts questioned his ability to stick at center field, but so far, those concerns have not been a problem as a pro. At the plate, Dahl is already demonstrating solid skills and for the year is hitting 381 with a 427 on base percentage and a very impressive 602 slugging percentage. He has 12 doubles, 8 triples, 4 home runs, and 8 stolen bases to go along with 15 walks and 26 strikeouts and 181 at-bats. Dahl has a simple approach at the plate with a quick left-handed stroke that generates lots of line drives. He also has good pitch recognition and solid plate discipline, and down the road some of that line drive power should develop into extra home runs. Some scouts have compared Dahl to the Blue Jays' Colby Rasmus, while others see Andy Van Slyke. Dahl just turned 18 in April and is one of the younger high schools in the draft, so this quick start bodes well for his long-term development. David Dahl is years away from making his Major League debut, but those in deep keeper leagues should definitely consider adding him before it's too late. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garapi, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at potential Cub stars Josh Vitters and Brett Jackson, also Blue Jays shortstop prospect Adani Hechevarria, and San Diego right-hander Corey Burns, and many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about using the Mayberry method as you go down the stretch. When I was in grad school at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I was quickly informed that I was only an hour south of the mythical town of Mayberry, North Carolina. Mount Airy is the actual name of the town, and it's grown since the days back from Andy Griffith, but his recent passing and the approach of your trade deadline has made me think 
about the Mayberry method, something Ron Chandler brought out a few years ago, and how important this is at your trade deadline. Right now, your friends are focusing on their fantasy football draft and analysis, while you should be focusing on analyzing playing time for your roster and your opponents. The Mayberry method basically said that while we can predict statistical categories, one thing you need to do is maximize playing time for your counting stats. Never is it more important than this point of the year. You can try to improve your ratios, but it's very difficult with so many innings and at-bats already in the books. But you can help your counting categories, and it's not that difficult. One of the things you want to do analyzing your roster and your opponents is looking for young pitchers who may come up with an innings pitch limit because they're not on a contender. Maybe they want to shut the guy down so they can use him next year fresh and not risk an injury. Maybe it's the opposite, a veteran pitcher like a Roy Halladay who struggled with injuries this year and his team is out of contention. There may be some young pitchers wanting to get some major league experience and that would be a risk to your playing time to continue to roster Roy Halladay. You also may want to look for minor league phenoms that are going to be called up that will cost that veteran playing time. You want to analyze, does your player play for a contender and therefore all guns blazing? They're going to maximize at bats of their starters? Or are they way ahead in their division, guaranteed a playoff spot, and you may lose some crucial at bats the last couple weeks? This kind of analysis can maximize your counting categories while your opponents are spending their time elsewhere. Using the Mayberry method, to improve your category, counting category stats and win your league. For Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about looking at the top prospects from 2002. In my USA Today column this week, I rehashed a piece of advice that we often give here at BaseballHQ.com. In keeper leagues, when you have the opportunity to win, you have to go all in, no matter how much you want to protect the future. You can't afford to be sitting on minor leaguers or riding the fence between today and tomorrow. No matter how much you want to protect the long term, you simply can't count on players being healthy or performing up to expectation or the winds of lady luck blowing in your direction every year. Stuff happens, so you have to grab for the gold when you can. So for those of you who have players like Jerickson Profar or Dylan Bundy or Will Myers or Garrett Cole sitting in your farm systems, you have to consider them as tradable commodities if you have legitimate title hopes this year. I thought it would be a useful exercise to take a look back and see how this advice has played out in the past. If we can assume that each year's top prospects should be expected to provide at least 10 good years of solid productivity, then we should be able to look back at the top names of 2002 and see how they've done. So here are the top prospects from 2002 from the minor league baseball analyst. Number 10 was Mark Pryor. He was a mega prospect compared to Hall of Fame names like Tom Seaver. He went 18-6 and six with a 2.43 ERA in 2003, but never came close to those numbers again. He last pitched in the majors in 2006 out of baseball completely for three years and started a comeback in 2010. He's being groomed for a bullpen role in the Red Sox organization right now, but he's been walking nearly a batter per inning in Pawtucket. Number nine was Nick Neugebauer. He went 1-7 with a 472 ERA in his rookie season with the Brewers. 
He underwent arthroscopic shoulder surgery the following February, missed the entire 2003 season, and retired shortly after that. Number 8. Wilson Bedemit has managed to stay in the majors for 10 years. His career highs have been 18 home runs and 412 at-bats, both back in 2006. He did bat 305 once in uh, 2005. Number 7. Joe Burchard also peaked in 2006, and his peak was 10 homers and a 230 batting average in 239 at-bats. His last major league appearance was 2007, and he retired from baseball in June 2011. Number 6. Josh Hamilton, currently among baseball's elite hitters. However, it would have not have been a good play to hoard him in your farm system back in 2002. With all his personal issues, he didn't make his major league debut until five years later. Number five was Carlos Pena. He's fashioned a pretty solid major league career, though his true breakout season was not until 2007. He hit 46 homers and batted 282 that year, but he's hit over 227 just once in the five seasons since. Number four, Austin Kearns, also saw his big breakout in 2006 with a 24-homer campaign, but he never hit more than 16 in any other season and has amassed even 400 at-bats only three times in his career. Number three, Sean Burrows, played full-time for the Padres in 2003 and four, posting a solid batting average with virtually no power or speed. It went downhill from there, and he hung up his spikes in 2006. In 2010, he attempted a comeback and is now playing in the Twins organization, where he continues to display no power or speed, and not much batting average either. Number two was Hank Blaylock. Very productive early career, beginning in 2003 with Texas. His peak season was 2004 with 32 home runs and a 276 batting average. He never hit more than 25 again, battling injuries from 20, 2007 on, and was out of baseball by mid-2010. And the number one player in 2002, Josh Beckett. Also hit the ground running, highlighted by a masterful appearance in the 2003 World Series. Despite battling occasional injuries, this one could be considered a definite win. Perhaps the most notable thing about these 2002 prospects is that only three were immediately productive, and only two went on to become stars, or true stars. Half of them did not post their first truly productive season for four to five years. The Texas Rangers refused to part with Profar or Mike Olt in their trade discussions at the deadline. That's not a luxury most fantasy leaguers and keeper leagues can have. Remember that flags fly forever. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the Maverick Malcontent. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at usatoday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes. Give us those five stars. 
I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist Ray Murphy. It's always fun to speculate along with Ray. And I also want to thank our regular guests from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse columnist this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some more great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Doug Dennis has a really interesting review of bullpens that you can look at for down the stretch and even next season. Stephen Nickrant looks at the July base performance value leaders among starting pitchers. And Alex Becky's head-to-head column looks at battery power, an interesting concept. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. My most recent column is about embracing volatility, something you might want to think about as you go down the stretch and those performances start to swing back and forth. Also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>